If you would please turn to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 15 this morning. And I'm an emotional wreck. It's a good thing I have to do anything else during this service other than preach for 45 minutes. Uh, it's, it's such a wonderful, it's, a, it's, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's growth and it's the way it ought to be, but it's hard. It's kind of like those of us who are empty nesters. You know, you, you, you devote yourself to preparing your children to go out and go do, you know, to be grown-ups. And yet it's really, really hard. This has been that kind of weekend. I'm cleaning out the garage right now, and I came across a box of Meg's toys, and I cried for 45 minutes. I mean, it just, it, it's just hard when they actually do grow up and do what they're supposed to be. It was awkward. I'm sitting there. There's a whole crowd of feral cats staring at me the whole time. And probably wonder if, if he dies, we can eat him. You know, it's... A, my neighbor feeds the feral cats. That's so inside. All right, so turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. I'll stop being a martyr, and we will look at the Word of God this morning. Let me go. We, we could use some more prayer right now. God, we come to you, Lord, and pray for holy strength, pray for encouragement, pray for the movement of the Holy Spirit, God. Uh, Lord, when we, when we open up our Bibles, we do so in obedience to you and in love to you. You gave us a book, a book that reveals your heart to us. Let us not neglect a single word. Let us accept it the way it was intended, as the word of God. Let it not return void. Let us grow and bless you. And Lord, of all the things, let us just love you all the more as a result of the passage that we look at this morning and love others as we should in the church, as this passage is pointing to. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord that comes to us from 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. God says, and the Apostle Paul writes, And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with all men, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. As we looked at last week, the Apostle Paul is closing up his, uh, his thoughts to the, first, uh, to the Thessalonians, uh, and he's explaining uh, how we are to live in the light of the return of Jesus Christ. He's kind of getting to the end of his papyrus scroll, and he's starting to just kind of give some bullet point reminders to the Thessalonians of things they need to do. Last week, we looked at the relationship, the, the mutual pastoral or the mutual care that uh, needs to happen within the church for the pastor and for the congregation. And now he's expanding somewhat that idea of what is the congregation to do? What are their duties within the church of Jesus Christ? And he's probably addressing, as he normally does, problems and issues that are specifically going on with the Thessalonian church, but certainly things that we certainly would deal with ourselves uh, as a church of Jesus Christ. You see, it's something similar in Ephesians chapter 4, where he talks about what is it the role of a pastor and of the congregation. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, where he says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ 
until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure and the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You'll notice this particular uh, couple of verses starts off with, we urge you, brethren, we urge you, brethren. So there's a sense of urgency here. That idea means to come alongside. This is very important. And who's he addressing? The brethren. He's addressing the congregation of the believers. So what we're going to kind of expand this idea that Paul mentions in Ephesians where he says the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And we're, we're going to look at five different groups of people that we as a congregation are supposed to work together on to help in the building up of the body of Christ. You might be assisted somewhat here by your home group helps. You'll see the outline for you on one side and then some uh, perhaps some questions for reflection there on the other side. But we're going to look at these five categories of people that are, are, are needing care uh, within the church. And the first of all, it says they're the unruly here. And the unru to the unruly, we are to admonish. Now, what does that unruly mean? You know, I mean, I think uh, by and large, we're pretty well behaved people when it comes to a Sunday morning service of worship. What is he talking about with unruly? What does unruly mean? Uh, it could mean a number of different things. It could be unruly, uh, apathetic. It's actually a military term uh, coming out of the Roman uh, Greek, uh, uh, you know, uh, way of doing things in the military, where it actually means to step out of rank, to step out of rank. Uh, those of you who've been in the military or even the Boy Scouts, for instance, when you're learning to march, you know, you need to march together and you could have 3000 men in perfect unison. And if you've got one out of step, everybody's going to notice that one. Everyone's going to notice that one. Well, the same kind of thing happens in the church of Jesus Christ here. In particular, he's probably pointing out the sin of idleness we think that probably because he's already mentioned it in chapter 4, and he goes on in 2 Thessalonians, where he says, we hear that some of you are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but are busy bodies. Leon Moore says this, there were some Thessalonica who had ceased to work and were imposing on the generosity of others. In this way, the gospel was disgraced as Christians neglected their duties in the family and in society. There are certain rules of behavior that we all need to adhere to. And there, there's agreements, even unspoken agreements on how that is to work. And when we breach those agreements, when we break them, when we neglect them, it's an out-of-step situation. It hurts the whole church. So the unruly here were those who were out of step with the direction that everyone else was handing. And this is important. As Americans, we're pretty independent folks, right? I mean, like we fight wars of independence and that sort of thing. But there is a principle within the church, a biblical principle in the church, where there is an expectation for holy conformity. Holy conformity. God's not looking for cookie-cutter Christians. He made all of you unique and beautiful. But for us to be able to work together as the body of Christ, we need to be able to be unified, and we need to have appropriate uh, keeping to the, the standards that God's given us and appropriate behavior uh, to do so. So what do these kind of things look like in our context? I don't think there's any of you who were just sleeping on the couch of someone for 15 months with no intention of going to get in a job because you think Jesus is coming back. And I think that's kind of what the Thessalonians did. But there are, there, it could apply in many ways. And this is between you and the Holy Spirit. I don't have anybody in particular. But there is an expectation that we all need to work together. Could it be maybe? That you went out to a Clemson game, and the Clemson game was so late, so you decided not to come to church the next day. That, that could hurt all of us. Could it be that you're one to take, but you're not one to, to, uh, to give? Could it be 
that you'll use just about any excuse to keep from joining together? Could it be that you are not involving yourself in the ministries of this church when you actually could involve yourself with the ministries of this church? Could it be that you are not volunteering? Could it be that you eat lots of covered dishes, but you never bring covered dishes? You fill in the blanks. But everything, little, 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 little things really, really matter. Jesus Christ said in the parable of the steward, Luke 16, 10, He who is faithful in the very little things is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. The parable of the talents, Matthew 25, he says this, The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. When I came to know the Lord, I was a fairly immature college student. And the gentleman who is now a pastor in Cary, North Carolina, who discipled me, really emphasized, I mean, I think this was like week two of my discipleship, memorized this principle. To be faithful in little things is to be faithful in all, uh, 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 into everything. And there's a discipline that has to occur in the Christian life. And, 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 and so often when people fail, it's not a lack of intelligence. It's not a lack of desire. It's not a lack of it. It's just laziness. It's just a, a disorderly life. I had a student at Anderson University one time. Show up. We would show up. My class is at 5 o'clock at night. Shows up at 5 o'clock almost every time wearing pajama bottoms, a hoodie, and a baseball cap. Sits in the far back. Never turned in the assignment. You know, and, and, and this kind of thing. And then came up to me a week before the exams. And he says, hey, what can I do to pass this class? And I said, you could have started turning in assignments back in August. And he's a nice guy. And I think he might have been a Christian. Nice guy, everything. And I said, I said, you lack discipline. You lack discipline. And you advertise it. I, he's advertises a lack of, he advertises a lack of ambition. Now, I used to be a corporate recruiter. It's a competitive world out there to get a good job. And this person would never get even an interview, Okay. He ended up failing. And I'm hoping that he kind of learned that lesson and grew up. But there's a little bit of that in all of us, isn't it? A little bit of just kind of get away with slackness because they have to accept it anyway. I remember a wonderful story of a, uh, this, actually this pastor that led me to the Lord back in Clemson. He was working for a Mennonite builder. Um, if you ever can get a Mennonite builder, get a Mennonite builder. And uh, he had, there was an example. They were working on a window pane in the upper part of a garage and everything. And there was a little crack in that window pane. And they went to the whole trouble to unglaze it, pull out that crack and put it in. No one would have ever seen that little crack in the window pane but one person. Who? God. So do you change the window pane? You change the window pane. You change the window pane. Getting up on time, making your bed, exercising whatever you want to do, faithfully studying, turning the assignments, checking in on Calling your mama and telling her to thank you, whatever it might be. You fill in the blank. All those little things matter. Do you know that Jesus says if you give some, something so little as a cup of cold water to a person, you will receive a reward in heaven? How much more by being here this morning? How much more by repenting of your sins? How much more by getting up in the morning and spending the first moments of your day in prayer? Uh, and in reading God's word, how much more in fellowship and encouragement, how much more in serving, how much more in planting a church. 
If God's going to reward a cup of cold water, a little thing, what else is he going to reward? You just don't want to miss out on that, folks. You don't want to miss out on it. And it's also dangerous when we, we are not doing that kind of thing. For instance, Demas. Demas is mentioned by the Apostle Paul, two separate letters, as a great companion. But as Paul is in jail and he is about to be executed, he's writing to Timothy in his last will and testament in 2 Timothy. He says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Most people think Demas was apostate, that, that he actually was lost. Maybe he was never saved before. For some, there was some attraction to Christianity. And then when it, the, things got hard, I, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Haven't we all caved at some point in time? Haven't we all felt the pressure? Haven't we all been depressed or full of self-pity or just exhausted in a particular time and not done the right thing? Maybe Demas just had a, a bad day. But here's the thing is, you prepare not to be a Demas in the end of your life by being faithful with what God's given you to be in your current situation. For these people who are unreal, we are to admonish them. The King James actually says, warn them here. You're kind of to warn them about the consequences of their actions. Lack of self-control, feeding the flesh, undisciplinary uh, uh, actions, all of those things are going to lead to problems. They're going to be, make things even worse down the road. So we're to warn them, we're to admonish them, and we, to, we need to let them know you're hurting the church. You're hurting the bride of Christ in all of these actions. I think I've used this illustration. I've used every illustration before. I mean, I've been here for 15 years. And I'm like a suburban guy. I don't have all these exciting things going on in my life. So, I to, so here you go with an illustration again. But we had someone who was a member of the church a number of years ago. And her heart was right in many ways. She really wanted to be involved with ministry and all that. But she just dominated. She would just tend to come into a group and she would just take over. And then she expected everybody to fully embrace 100% all the time, all the things that she was interested in. And she didn't listen. She just talked to the one. She would get you in a corner and it'd be a half an hour of her telling you stuff about going on and everything. And it was wearing people out. It was hurting others. She was unruly. She was self-focused and unruly. Well, I had the unpleasant duty of confronting her about this because some things had come up with me. And I confronted her. And, of course, as so often as these things go, she's completely offended. She never comes back to the church again, and I'm just this terrible, mean person. She called me three years later, left a voicemail, and said, I just want you to know I started to be associated with a person and having to work with a person who was just like the way I was when I was at your church. And she drove me crazy. And I had to confront her. And she was all upset at me. So I'm calling to tell you, please forgive me. You were right. I was that way. And I deserve it. Now that I've seen it through my own eyes. Yeah, you don't normally get those. They just go out there and hate you for the rest of their lives, usually. But what a blessing. What a ble There's someone who was unruly, in a sense, who initially rejected this admonishment, but then realized later through the power of the Holy Spirit, and frankly, to give her some credit as well, that that was right. That was right. And she's going to be much better off having recognized that now. Now we come to the faint-hearted here. Uh, we are to encourage them. The literal meaning of faint-hearted is little-souled. 
to be little sold. Now, Paul's context is probably the Thessalonian church was being, was being persecuted. These are brand new believers, maybe months old, and they're starting to pay a very heavy price for being believers. Uh, the Jew, Jews were opposing them. The Jews maybe have got some of the pagans to the Greeks to oppose them. And they were starting to pay a price. And there were people who were becoming timid and they were uh, considering bailing. Becoming apostate, leaving the church and everything. And Paul's saying, no, no, we need those people to hang in there and they need to be encouraged. Now, in our context, we're not being persecuted. We're not being, yeah, we're not being persecuted. Uh, it still costs us to a certain degree to have a church like ours. You know, you don't let women be pastors. You must be full of hatred. That's a demon church, you know. You know, I mean, you get that kind of thing from time to time, not in that kind of voice. That's my, that's my apostate, evil, wretched people who hate our church voice. Um, but, but it cost us a little bit, right? But it was really costing them a lot. So what do, how do we handle this in our context? People with anxiety. People who are depressed, maybe. People who are consumed with self-loathing, maybe. Now, folks, we got scads of that. Just saw a recent report, something like 25% of the, what are we now, Gen Zers, right? Women uh, struggle with anxiety and, and depression. Uh, something about half that number of the men. Um, I've asked young people before, uh, you, know, you know, who's dealing with anxiety? And, you know, all these hands go up, people who are on medication and everything. Uh, part of it is, may be biological, uh, you know, I think a lot of it is the culture, the Instagram stuff, this dystopian environment they grew up in. These are folks that came up after 9-11, no hope and this kind of thing. And it goes to their core, goes to the core. Those folks need encouragement. Those folks need to be blessed. They need to know it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Well, it's hard for a 21-year-old to tell another 21-year-old it's going to be okay but you got a 70-year-old that comes up and says, let me tell you, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You wouldn't believe the things that we've lived through. And God's gotten us through every single one of them. It's a calming of the sheep. Literally, that idea of encouragement means to come speak alongside with someone. It is to take that anxious, depressed, and discourage them, put your arm around them, and just tell them, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. They might ask for advice, they might ask for encouragement, but they mostly just need to be, hear that it's going to be okay. It's a calming voice. And as I was preparing this, I came across this amazing illustration. As some of y'all know, uh, my son McBride is in Ukraine right now. This is his second visit there. He's doing medical support. Uh, uh, this time he's doing medical support as he did last time with Mission Kharkov taking equipment that the Russians blew up all the hospitals intentionally. And they're taking to try to help people with medications that they can't get and that kind of thing. He's also uh, shooting a documentary with some folks from National Geographic. So uh, anyway, he sent, he's, you know, we get a little nervous. We hadn't heard from him. He's 20 miles from the Russian border. He's within artillery strike, within rocket strike. So uh, one night he had three different air raid alerts. So they have to wake up, go down to the bomb shelter and this kind of thing. Uh, but, but, you know, he's fallen in love with the Ukrainians. And if you follow the news, you know, the Ukrainians have just got it going on. They're, they're kind of laughing in a sense. They've got just a great sense of humor about what's happened to them. They've kind of turned, as Jack says, they've sort of turned the war into a meme. And uh, like, for instance, the, the Ukrainians call the Russian soldiers orcs. 
You remember early on in the war when a Russian vehicle will be blown up, they would spray paint Wolverines on the side of it, going back to that American movie Red Dawn where the Wolverines were attacking the Russians and that kind of thing. Uh, but he says now, too, when he was there last year, when you had an air raid warning, this guy who was like the minister of defense would get up there, quick, get to bomb shelter, it's perilous. And it would just terrify everybody, right? So he sent us a copy of the, 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 the new air raid warning in Kharkiv on the front lines in Ukraine and see if you recognize this voice. Attention, air raid alert. Proceed to the nearest shelter. Don't be careless. Your overconfidence is your weakness. Attention, air raid alert. Proceed to the nearest shelter. Don't be careless. Your overconfidence is your weakness. Attention, the air alert is over. May the force be with you. Isn't that brilliant? Mark Hamill recorded their air alert. That's a great example of coming along and alongside and comforting those who are strong, those who are, are fearful and everything. Yo, that's what we need to do. Sometimes we take ourselves and we take life a little too seriously. We, gotta, we just need a little bit of a big hug from Mark Hamill, Lou Skywalker, right? To remind folks the force is with you. I just thought that was brilliant. I want a big points, though, too, also for the media thing. That was kind of like my New Spring moment. You know, there. You. You'll get another one maybe with six or seven years, you know. Uh, so we're to be cheerful in the face of hardship. We now have the, uh, the, the principle here of the, with the weak. And what do we do with the weak? We are to help them. Now, this may be people with, with, uh, struggling with self-control, maybe struggling with addiction. Uh, they're having a hard time getting rid of some of the worldly pleasures. They call Jesus Lord, but they really struggle obeying him. And as more and more of the families are becoming dysfunctional, more and more absentee fathers, more and more things that are out there, then we're going to have more and more of these kind of people. That dysfunctionality in the culture is going to come into this church. Uh, so basically, what are we to do? We're to help them. We are to hold them. That idea of clinging to or support or hold up is it's coming alongside the stronger sheep, coming alongside the weaker sheep and helping them through the battle. When I was reading this, I, kept, I just kept thinking of the illustration. To this day... When I'm driving around town and I see a big, wide parking lot with just a little bit of a decline on it, I think that would be a great place to teach a kid to ride a bike. You other dads know what I'm talking about? I've taught four children how to ride a bike. And you look for this wide open space so they don't end up with a broken face with a little bit of an incline to kind of help them get And you just kind of give them a little push and you just run as fast as your chubby little legs can make it. And you just kind of keep them going until finally they get to ride a bike. And then once that clicks, you know, it's there. You, you never forget. Isn't that weird? You never forget how to ride a bike. You never forget the balance and stuff like that. But you've got to run alongside them at first. They're not even going to get on the bike if you don't help them with it. That's what we do. That's what we do with these weak folks. Well, that's what we do. We help them. We help them go along the way. Now, this is important because God intentionally sends weak people into the church for very, very good reason. This text is worth me reading in its entirety because sometimes, you know, you have a couple of pe different kinds of people out there. There's some people who are spiritually gifted. They got their act together and they can be tempted to become prideful about it. 
There are other people who struggle with uh, confidence. They struggle with giftedness. Sometimes they wonder if they even have a spiritual gift, even though everybody's supposed to have one, you know, this kind of thing. And they are kind of wallowing self-loathing. They think they're self-useless. Paul addresses both of those kinds of pride. Do not be mistaken, those of you who wallow in self-pity, that is pride. It's not arrogance. That's the other kind of person. But it is just as bad, just as much pride because you're basically saying, I deserve better. And you're not embracing providence. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For even as the body is one and yet as many members, many body parts, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we're baptized in the body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. That's the thing that's common amongst all of us, no matter what our background. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand... I am not part of the body. Is it for any less reason or less part of the body? If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of, uh, out of the body, then where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God, who's done this? God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Every single one of you are here this morning because God has placed you here. From your standpoint, it was your, your, your choice, right? But God has placed each one here, all right? And if they are all one member, where would the body be? But how are, now there are many members in one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head or the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is as much true that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which are deemed less honorable on those he bestows more abundant honor. And our unseemly members come to have an abundant seemliness. Whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so comprised, composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked that there should be no division in the body, but the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice in it. Now that you are Christ's bodies and individual members of it. So God intentionally mixes alphas and betas, strong and weak, whatever it might be. Different people, different backgrounds, this kind of thing. And he does that for our mutual good. And so you've got to be careful, those of you who seem to kind of have your act together, putting down those who are weaker people. It actually may be because of your arrogance that they brought that person in there to teach you how to love. Or those of you who are struggling, you know, you tend to resent, maybe be jealous of these people who seem to have their act together. Listen, do not underestimate your arrogance and your pride and your uh, uh, unwillingness to follow divine providence. This body, the church universal, has been perfectly designed by God for us to be able to work together, keep in step with one another, and march forward. But I tell you what's radical about this. When is Paul writing this? He's writing this during the period of the Romans. Romans, nice guys, right? Really sweet, you know? You want them to date your daughter, right? Romans, no. No, they literally watched people kill each other for entertainment. They were brutal. Why, did Rome, why was Rome so successful? Because they killed everybody else and took their stuff. That's how it happened, right? If you're Italian, I apologize. 
No, I don't. Right. I'm, anyway, if you're Italian, I hope you contributed to a, the covered dish today. <laughs> uh, Romans despised weakness. A sick child, they just put on the street, let the animals eat it. They sp- Here comes Christianity saying, embrace the weak. You show your strength to help that weak. You know why? Because the weak people can become strong. Darwinists, if Darwinists, naturalists, were honest with their worldview, they also despise the weak. Because Darwin, it's all about survival of the fittest. Well, you know what? There are a lot of us who ain't so fit. Good thing we ain't. Darwin's not over heaven, but God is. Matthew, uh, Jesus has a special heart, and is in, uh, a special place in his heart for these kind of people. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You know that? He's talking about children there. You know who it also includes? You know who's going to be drowned in the depth of the sea? Bullies. And the uncaring. Jesus invented social justice. James chapter 1, verse 27. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God the Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Those of you who've been Christians for a while, have you ever served anyone that really needed help and walked away thinking, boy, that was a waste of time. I sure wish I hadn't done that. You haven't, have you? Every act of service, God somehow blesses. He blesses you and he blesses you, you in your heart. And this is real social justice. People who really can't get, get, get help. The, the, the social justice that's, in, that's out there right now is to sympathize with anarchists, to sympathize with terrorists. That is not social justice. People are out there talking about all this stuff that they want to go with. And, and, and what a blessing it is to have these riots in Atlanta and stuff like that. And they've completely ignored the person right next door who really just needs a little bit of help and a little bit of encouragement. Now, let me give you a couple of quali- uh, uh, cautions here. I've kind of bashed liberals today. Let me bash conservatives for a minute because, frankly, you can be just as irritating. Conservatives have this thing where they judge harshly people who are tempted in areas they're not tempted in. And I'm just telling you, if you had the same kind of background, the same kind of mom and daddy, the same kind of genetics, the same kind of experiences, whatever, that some of these people that you're looking down on had, you might be exact same way or even worse. Humility is the thing that makes all of this happen. God is not looking to make a bunch of you COVID Karens that are out there marking out all the weak people so that you can point out all their weaknesses and stuff like that. What he is looking for is for people who will lovingly help weak people become strong people. And it's important for us to keep that in mind because the fact is we're all weak people. In some way or another, we're all weak people. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still helpless at the right time, God, uh, Christ died for the ungodly. So we are, can be sympathetic and loving, but not leave people where they are. You know why? Because these people will end up hurting the church if we're not careful. One commentator says this, the church's lack of spiritual progress is usually due to the sinful behavior of people in these problem categories. Paul earnestly desired that Thessalonians know how to adequately deal with those in each category. 
If such people are not dealt with, they tend to become bitter. They can become criticizing bench warmers and eventually re re uh, rebels who undermine church leadership to justify their subordination. If these folks are ignored, they get worse, and then, and then they become vocal. And they just start attacking and undermining a lot of what the church is doing. So the ch for the church's sake, we have to engage. We have to engage. Let me tell you, you're not going to be able to obey this text if you just check the box on Sunday morning and you don't care about anything else. You've got to engage in the body life of this church or RUF or your roommates or your company, wherever you are, your family. Now we go on to all other Christians here. There's these, that's what the one another verse means here. These are to be uh, the one another's we're to be patient with. That's a tough one, tough one, isn't it? We're not to repay another evil with evil, but always asking, I mean, seeking what is good. So you're not here to be patient, of course, to be forbearing here. We are not to repay another with evil for either. Now, let me tell you that this is not about justice. This is not about civil justice. Christians have a right to expect civil justice. This is about personal vengeance. Understand? There's a big difference there. There's laws in, in the Bible that talk about justice that you may not take on to yourself in terms of vengeance. All right? So what we're to do, that we are basically to, to not be vengeful, but we're to seek what is good. Now, y'all, this is radical. Again, this was radical when Paul wrote it. It was radical today. There's a lot of people out there seeking vengeance. They hated, uh, hated, uh, uh, Jonah hated the Assyrians. He wanted them to die. God called him to go uh, uh, share the gospel with the, uh, the, the Assyrians, called him to repentance. He refused to do it, got eaten by the fish. You know the rest of the story. If you don't, come here when Jack preaches next. He's still working on the book of Jonah. But in the belly of the fish, he says this, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee. He remembered the Lord. Asaph, music minister, was struggling with injustice and envy and, frankly, self-pity. In Psalm 73, he gets to the point, surely in vain I have chastened it, uh, uh, I am, uh, sorry, surely I am in vain and kept my heart pure. I have washed my hands in innocence. You ever done that? Boy, I tell you, I just obeyed God and I paid the price for it. And he's just wallowing in self-pity here. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. When I pondered to understand this, I was troubled in my sight until the great transition, until I came to the sanctuary of God. Paul says... And this is what Jonah and Asaph eventually did. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So this is the key. This is the key to keep you from wallowing in self-pity, from you to being one of these weaker people, from you to go seeking vengeance about them, is you keep your eyes focused on God. No matter what's happened to you, and some of you have had some pretty bad things happen to you, no matter what's happened to you, God is God of the universe. And he will use that to bring about good. But not if you're fighting him the whole way. Not if you're wallowing in self-pity. Not if you're going out to go have vengeance and that kind of thing. But y'all think about, if we, if we are really seeking out to help each other with this active desire for, for goodness here, what difference would it make for the church? What difference would it make for the church? One of the nicest compliments our church ever got, uh, someone was sharing this in home group the other night. They had a friend that visited, I think, a few weeks ago. And, they, and after the church, they said, wow, y'all really do love each other. Score. What, what a wonderful thing to say about us. Wow, we really do love each other. Really do love each other. 
That's just music to the, to the officers of this church ears, right? Well, we are doing some things right. We got a whole lot way to go because we're fighting our culture. We're fighting our lack of community. It's harder to love now in some ways because we're so distant. We're so insulated. We come home to our air conditioning. We come home to our televisions. We have our smartphones. We can be perfectly entertained without saying a thing to any other Christian for all week long. That was not the case in the early church in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed together had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day to day, continuing with one mind in a temple, breaking bread from house to house, and they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. The Lord was adding to their number day to day those who were being saved. Love is what will grow a church. Love and obedience. It's contagious. People want to be part of a group that's like that Acts chapter 2 group in so many ways. You don't grow a church with marketing techniques or entertainment or amusing skits. You don't grow a church through watered-down gospel or keep from offending each other. You don't grow a church by musical entertainment. It sounds like America's top 40. You grow a church by preaching what God has to say in his Bible and by living that Bible out in love and obedience. And God himself will cause the church growth without us tricking anybody or manipulating anybody or cuting anybody into the kingdom here. The church grew because the people's holiness grew. Don't you want that? If you don't want to be holy, you're probably not a Christian. You're probably not a Christian. Or you're just having a really bad day. I mean, we, we do have to make room for that. We all have moods, right? And then, of course, we have to... We have to have the same standard for all men. This idea of all men is mentioned two different times here. And notice it's really kind of an identical as the, as the previous point. That we're to be patient. We're not to repay evil for evil, but always seeking what is, what is good. This is, this is the standard for people outside of the church, y'all. This is a shocker, and this is really hard sometimes. The standard for people outside the church is the same standard we're to have for one another. And that's radical. I have heard Muslim clerics say you can lie to an infidel, one of you, a Christian, because they're a Christian. You don't have to tell them the truth. That's just not, that's a lie. That's a lie. How clever. That's a lie. You speak truth to Christians, you speak truth to non-Christians. Now, I'm not talking about an espionage situation, Rahab the Hallert and all that kind of stuff. You don't, we're not going to go down that road. But you are to truth tell. You don't, just because someone's not a Presbyterian doesn't mean you lie to them. Do not repay another with evil, but always seeking the good. This, uh, there, there is no room for personal vengeance. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, Never take out your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For as written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For so, in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And y'all, there's plenty of illustrations in history where this is where an enemy has been treated with kindness and they no longer become the enemy. They no longer become the enemy. They, in their good conscience, they can't, they can't hurt the person who's been kind to them. You know, it's the, the mouse and the thorn and the lion, right? That happens in real life all, all of the time here. 
And the reason why we can do that is, again, going back to trusting in provinces. You're Jonah. You're looking to the Lord. You're Asaph. You're looking to the temple. You're Paul. Keep your mind set on things above. When you trust that providence has worked out even the evil in your lives, even with the person who's being vindictive, even the, son, the person who's stolen something from you, whatever, he's going to use that to bring it about. Sometimes he shows you exactly why he's going to do that. Sometimes he doesn't. There's just this mystery out there, right? But it's a, there's a matter of faith here, isn't it? There's a matter of faith. You have to tolerate some of these things because you know God is overall. Muhammad Reza Jisser drove his SUV through a bunch of students in Chapel Hill saying that he did it to retaliation for Muslims killed around the world. Shiite uh, Muslim cleric Mogik Saird blamed the bombing of a Shiite stron in an Iraqi town of Samara on Sunni Arab militants and he vowed to take revenge. Timothy McVeigh blew up the Edward R. Murrow building in Oklahoma City. On April 19, 1995, killing 168 people and injuring 850, McVeigh claimed that the bombing was for revenge for what the U.S. government did at Waco and Ruby Ridge. When you seek personal vengeance, you become a Timothy McVeigh. How big or how small, you lose your mind over something. You, you lose perspective. There's no such thing as a Christian terrorist. There should be no such thing as Christian road rage. Lex talionis is the idea of civil justice. That, again, is a civil justice. We are not to um, go after people. We are to expect justice to take us. But now, again, if you have, there's a crime being committed to you, this isn't just you just ignore what's happened. You may need to send that person to jail. You need, may need to testify against them. You need, may need to bring in the church officers, and we have some discipline. For, it's not like you're not a doormat here. But you're also not a fist waiting to punch somebody because of something that they have done to you. Great example of this, we celebrated last week, Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a flawed man just like the rest of us. He had his issues. But the more I study him, the man just, he, he kind of had this principle down. There was such a contrast between he and Malcolm X. Malcolm X hated white people, wanted vengeance, wanted to completely separate black people from white people. He ended up getting killed by some of his own people. Contrast that with Martin Luther King, who would not fall into that kind of vengeance. He literally would turn the other cheek time and time again. John Stott summarizes what Dr. Benjamin May said at Martin Luther King at his junior at his funeral when he was killed. Uh, it's interesting. His relief is actually on the opening of Westminster, uh, uh, Westminster um, Cathedral in London as a Christian martyr. If any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew it. House bombed, living day and day, uh, day and night, 13 years under constant threats of death, maliciously accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt because his friends betrayed him. And yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind. And he went up and down the length and breadth of his own world, preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. From a Georgia jail cell, he wrote a sermon on Matthew 5, the idea of turning the other cheek, entitled Love Your Enemies. In it, he described how, he, how the uh, hate multiplies hate. I'm quoting him now, in a spiral of violence and is just as injurious to the person who hates as to the victim. But above all, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend, for it was creative and redemptive power. 
He is determined to meet hate with love. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, was any, or nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but keeping, kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. That's just a beautiful summary of what we're looking at today in today's text. So let all of us be able to meet hate with love, not only with that, but also to meet the unruly, the faint-hearted, the weak, and everyone else with love. Father, we do, we do thank you for giving us instructions. We are so prone to reject what's different from us, what, to reject what we don't like, to avoid confrontation, to avoid the uncomfortable. And Lord, truly, it's going to take a work of the Holy Spirit to, to get us to engage in relationships with people because we have so many options of being able to avoid them. So I pray, Lord God, that you would teach our church to be a church of love. In, in truth, sometimes Reformed churches like ours, we, we, really, we, we, we seem to really exemplify truth, appeal to reason and the intellect. And this is often a neglected aspect of our churches. Let that not be the case for our church here. And let us be the solution to that in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.